chapter 11. Uh, if you guys were with us last week, um, you might recall we went through this story in the beginning of Matthew 11 with John the Baptist, right? And he's in prison. And we talked about hope and hardship. And John the Baptist, he's doubting whether Jesus really is who he said he was. And of all people, John the Baptist is doubting. And we talked about that a little bit. And we dove into that and tried to understand why would John be doubting. And Jesus comes back and he says, hey, I'm fulfilling the prophecies concerning me. And we talked about all the different prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and how even mathematically God proves that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, at the very end of our study last week, we see Jesus confront the people and he says, essentially, whether there was a message from John the Baptist or from me, I played the flute for you and you didn't dance, we mourned to you and you did not lament, regardless of who the message is coming from and how the message is being delivered, you're not receiving the message. So it's not the message, there's something wrong with your hearts. And the message from both John the Baptist and Jesus, though they were different, they were very similar. They both said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we're going to look after Jesus talks about that. He's going to go right into this section where he rebukes these three specific cities where he did most of his miracles. He did most of his works and he's calling them to repentance. And we're going to see after he addresses these three cities, he's going to take it back to the babes, back to his children, back to the believer. And the theme is still repentance, but he talks about the famous verse, all you who are weary, heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest for your souls. So we see this restfulness connected to this idea of repentance, which brings me to the title of this message, simply restful repentance. Restful repentance. And you'll understand as we get through the entire text. But repent, in the Bible, it really means to, to you're going this way and, and you turn around 180 degrees, and you go a different way. It means to change one's life, or one's attitude, or thought process towards sin. I don't look at sin the same way that I used to. Something changes. That change starts in the heart. We view things differently. And as time goes on, the Holy Spirit convicts us perfectly, and there's certain sins that we realize, wait, wait, I'm doing this? I shouldn't be doing that. Because again, the goal of the Lord is to transform us into his image. But I want to focus specifically here. He repents these, he, he calls these three cities to repent because if they don't, they're going to face judgment. But he's also calling us to repent. If you were with us on Wednesday, we know that the church isn't judged like the unbelievers judged. We have the Bema Seat judgment. If you want to know more about that, you can listen to the tape on Wednesday. But the Lord is calling us to repent so that we can find rest, so that we can be free. And that's what he's going to get at here at the end of this text. But let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. 
where he starts to rebuke these cities. It says, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So Jesus specifically in this section is focusing on these three cities that he did most of his works. If anyone had reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, it was people that lived in these cities. They had more proof that Jesus truly was the Christ, that he was the Messiah they had been waiting for. They denied the truth, and because they denied the truth, they would face judgment. But even as believers, we often deny the truth, and the Lord will call us to repent, and we'll, ah, I don't want to. I'm going to deny that. I don't really know if I agree with that specific thing that you're calling me to repent of. And whatever the reason may be, lack of repentance is rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in unbelief. Whether you don't believe that the sin is really sin or you don't believe for the unbeliever that Jesus really is who he said he is. And that's the problem with these three cities. They don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. But how much more proof could they possibly need? This brings me to the first point, and I'll explain it after I state it. The proof is in the truth. That's a capital T, truth, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The proof is in the truth. What do I mean by that? We talked about how Jesus said to John the Baptist, I'm doing everything that the prophecy said that I would be doing. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. I'm doing all these things. I'm fulfilling all these prophecies. It's the same for these cities. He's doing all those things in these specific cities. Now think about this. Jesus, he claimed to be God, right? Claimed to be God, fulfilled somewhere between 350 and 450 prophecies, depending on how you count them, right? He said things like, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will lay there. That happened. He fulfilled that. 70 AD, temple's destroyed. He said, I'm going to die and raise myself again from the dead. How many people do you know that claim to be God, fulfill this many prophecies, say that they're going to die and then rise again from the dead and then pull it off exactly the way that they said they were going to do it? That doesn't happen. Jesus proves that he is who he said he was. And just speaking of the resurrection and this, this idea that the proof is in the truth, Jesus, he's all the proof that we need. He has proven himself time and time again, just thinking of the resurrection. If the resurrection wasn't true, then the disciples easily could have said, well, he just meant a spiritual resurrection. He didn't mean a bodily resurrection. He meant he was going to resurrect in his spirit, and they would have been fine. But no, they said he rose again physically. We saw him. We touched him. Our eyes beheld him. We, we touched him his transfigured, glorified body. And 10 of the 11 remaining died for making that claim and sticking to it to their death. Not just that Jesus was the Messiah, that he rose again from the dead in physical bodily form. He proved it. The disciples didn't have to go out like that. 
if it didn't really happen, but they died for something that was true. The proof is in the truth. And when we look at all that Jesus has done in history and the prophecies that, that he's fulfilled and, and, and resurrecting from the dead. That was a struggle for me when I first came to the Lord. This guy, he really rose from the dead. But the more you look into it and the more you study it, the historical facts and the philosophical, logical arguments, it's obvious this really happened. But for us in our lives, Jesus calls us to repentance and he gives us so much proof. He gives us so much evidence that he is who he is and the sins that we need to repent of or turn from are in fact sins and they need to change. How much proof do we really need? I was at a Christmas party. Um, This is about a year and a half after I was saved at my uncle's Christmas party. And um, right off the bat, I don't know, it was so weird. I had the choice between going to a Bible study and going to a Christmas party. Now this Christmas party, definitely some worldliness going on. You know, there's a few believers there, but a lot of worldliness. And I prayed about it and I was like, I think God wants me to go to the Christmas party. That sounds weird, right? Go to a worldly Christmas party? You guys are like, yeah, sure. Listen to what happened. So my brother's asked me, you want to go to this Bible study? I wanted to. I was like, I feel like we're supposed to go to the Christmas party. I haven't seen this uncle in a long time. And he's like, I don't know. I just feel like God's going to do something. So about 20 minutes after I get there, I'm getting like food in the line. And I run into this guy. His name's Elvis. Elvis the atheist. Okay. (laughs) I'll never forget his name. His name was Elvis. I end up talking to this guy for about two and a half hours. Okay. I'm having, I'm just talking to him about Jesus. Um, this guy, we keep going back and forth. I'm not like losing my cool. I'm very like peaceful and calm. He's a very intelligent guy. And we keep talking about stuff and he's like bouncing things off of me and I'm sharing my testimony and yada, yada, yada. And then I say to him, this is, this is exactly what I asked him. I said, what would God need to do for you to prove that he was really God? What would Jesus have to do to you to prove that he was really God in the flesh? This is what this guy said to me. He said, he would have to come down from heaven, do, claim to be God, and do a bunch of miracles. I go, dude, that's what he did 2,000 years ago. Do you want him to do that every day? Like, do you expect him to do that daily? And he was like, oh, well, yada, yada, yada. And then he literally got down in the middle of the party on his knees, and he said, God, come down here, and yada, yada, yada. It was, got a little awkward. But um, anyways... Literally, this atheist, this was an intelligent man too. I couldn't believe he said this. This atheist, the best way that he could think of for God to prove himself was exactly what God did. Exactly what he did. That just blew my mind. I was like, you just shared the gospel with me. You gotta be kidding me. It's so fascinating, but this is the reality. When it comes to atheism and hard hearts of unbelief. It's so much more than lack of evidence because it's not a lack of evidence. If you search hard enough, if you desire to know the truth and you seek it out for yourself, very few people will come to the conclusion of unbelief based on logic and philosophical arguments. You got people like Lee Strobel, who was an atheist journalist 
he went out to prove the gospel wrong and the gospel ended up proving him wrong. Now he's a pastor. It's like, come on, when you see these people and go out to, to really look into it, when they really desire to know the truth, the truth ends up proving them wrong. So unbelief, it's not just rooted in a lack of evidence. It's rooted in a hard heart. And I believe for Elvis, the reason that he didn't want to receive the gospel is because he knew if he actually looked at the evidence and believed that Jesus was who he said he was, then he would have to repent. He would have to change the way he lived his life. And I don't think that he wanted to change the way that he lived his life. He'd rather live a lie and do what he wanted to do than know the truth and turn from his ways. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. We'll read to verse 24. It says, Woe to you, Cherazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So we look at these cities and there's some comparison going on. Jesus, he's directly addressing three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, because that's where he did most of his works. That's what he's claiming here. And he's comparing the judgment that awaits them to the judgment that happened in past time to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're talking about that on Wednesday. We're talking about this, that a little bit this past Wednesday. But what happened? They were in sin. God judged them, fire from heaven, they were destroyed. Tyre in Sidon, it's really interesting. If you flip with me to Ezekiel chapter 26, these are one of those things in the Bible that just give me the chills and blow my mind. Look at this, in Ezekiel chapter 26, so Ezekiel is around the time of the Babylonian exile. So this is, um, he's in the, the, the 500, early 500 um, BC time period. He's like 605 to around 540 BC. It's estimated time. Okay. Look at this in Ezekiel 26. Look at what happens. God says this to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 3, therefore, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up, okay? So God is proclaiming judgment against Tyre, okay? Flip with me. Maybe it's on the same page for you. New page for me. Verse 12. This is still speaking to the judgment of Tyre. Look at what happens. He, he's specific. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, Listen to this. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Okay, listen to what happened. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great came up against Tyre, okay? The people of Tyre fled. You have the land of Tyre. Then there's an island of Tyre off the coast. The people fled to the island, those that remained. And you know what Alexander the Great did? 
He took all the rubble, all the stone, all their merchandise from the main city, and he built a bridge over to the island. Imagine this, the, the terror. Alexander the Great and his army is building a bridge to get, you think you're safe on the island, and he's building a bridge with all your rubble, all your housing to get to you. And he built the bridge, and then he destroyed the island. You can still, I wish I would have pull, pulled up a picture, but you students of the word, if you want to look at this, that, that landmass is still there today that Alexander the Great built. That's prophesied hundreds of years before it happened, specifically how it was going to happen. Their merchandise, their goods, all these things were going to be thrown into the water to build a bridge to destroy the island. That's fascinating. Alexander the Great also came against Sidon, destroyed them as well. So Jesus is saying to them, hey, remember what happened to Sodom? Remember what happened to Sire and Sidon? They were judged. God judged them. He destroyed those cities. Now Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, you have more reason to repent. You have more evidence of the truth of the gospel. Your judgment's gonna be even greater. So when we look at these cities, Chorazin's the first one that he says, there's no recorded miracles in that city in the gospel. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't do anything there. He's saying that he did, okay? Just because it's not in the gospel doesn't mean that it didn't happen. If you look at the last verse of John's gospel, he says, I love this. He says, verse 25, John 21, 25, and there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So we see there's so many things that Jesus did. The gospel writers just focused on specific things right? So we know that he did miracles in Trazen because he's saying, I've done mighty works in this city. We just don't have uh, stories of miracles that he did there in Bethsaida. It's very close to Capernaum. Um, this is where Philip, Andrew, uh, and Peter were from, possibly James and John as well. This was a, a prosperous city. We know Jesus did miracles here. We see that in the gospels. Capernaum, this was like uh, Jesus is, um, this is his main location. He did more in Capernaum than any other place. And that's why he says it like this. We'll reread re this text real quick about Capernaum. And he says, and you, verse 23, Matthew 11, verse 23, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What is he saying? You were exalted to heaven. You were my chosen city. You are the city that I chose to set up shop and do more miracles and preach more and do, do more than any other city. You are the chosen city. So because you are the chosen city, if you choose not to repent, you're going to have the greatest judgment of all. Why? Why is Jesus saying this? Why is he rebuking them because they're not destroyed yet. He's rebuking them because he loves them. He loves the people in those cities. He has, he's spending so much time there and focusing on these people. And that's what God does. He rebukes us because he loves us. He warns us to prevent us from facing the consequences of our actions. God does, he's a good father. He doesn't want us to face the, he doesn't want us to face the consequences for our sin. We know as believers, we're not going to face judgment. Unbelievers, you're going to face 
judgment. Believers, we might not face judgment, but we will face consequences for our sin. And he wants to prevent us from that. That's why he's rebuking, hey, stop what you're doing. Turn the other way. We see an example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 18. See, the people wanted to raise up for themselves a king. There's a lot to this, but I just want to focus on the specific warning of God. They want this thing. They have this desire. And I want you to picture that desire to have a king as sin. Okay? We desire this thing. We want this thing. And then look what God says. 1 Samuel chapter, sorry, 8, not 18. 8, verse 18, says, is in context to Israel demanding a king for themselves. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. They will also be like all the nations that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So let me kind of explain what's happening. The people want a king for themselves. They're like, we we want a king. We want to be like the surrounding nations. That's the desire of their heart. God gives them over to the desire of their heart. He puts King Saul in place, the, the king that the people thought that they wanted, much like the sin that we think we want. And he gives them over to it. And he says, hey, there's going to be consequences for this. You're going to regret this decision. I'm going to give you over to it. I try to tell you. I try to warn you. I try to rebuke you and prevent you because I love you and I'm your king. I'm the best king you're ever going to have, but I'm going to give you over to the desire of your heart. And with that, there's going to be consequences. And that's what we see through the reign of King Saul. But that's what God does with each of us. He rebukes us. He disciplines us because he loves us. God disciplines those he loves, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. Good father disciplines, rebukes, he corrects. You're not going to let your kid run out in the middle of the street, get hit by a car. He's like, no, no, you can't run out in the middle of the street. He'll rebuke us. He'll try to prevent us any way he can from walking in sin and putting ourselves in danger. But if we keep trying, we keep going, we keep pursuing it, he'll give us over to it. But we got to face the consequences. He doesn't want us to get hit by a car. But if we run out, keep running out in the street, eventually we're going to get hit by a car. So these cities, interestingly enough, they're nothing more than archaeological digs today. Okay? These cities that Jesus did so much in, preached so often in, did so many miracles in, they're not cities anymore. They're rubble. They're ruined. Just as Jesus said, he told them, he warned them. He didn't want to have this happen, but they had so much reason to believe, yet they didn't repent, and Jesus allowed the cities to be judged. And these were very prosperous cities. They weren't just like little towns. These were prosperous cities. But because they didn't take heed to the word of the Lord, they faced judgment. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 says, this is where it gets a little easier. Now he redirects from speaking and rebuking these three cities. Now he takes it back to the believers, okay? Look what he says right off the bat. 
He says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. What is Jesus saying here? God gives us the babes revelation and understanding of the message of the gospel, right? The people, many of the people, they had hard hearts of unbelief. It wasn't the delivery of the message. It wasn't who was preaching the message. It was just, they didn't want to repent. They didn't want to change. They were stuck and satisfied in their sin. They had prosperous cities. Many of them were very wealthy. I'm good where I'm at. I don't want to change my life. But Jesus says, God, thank you for revealing this to the babes. Thank you for revealing it to my children that they know they need to change, that they have sin struggles and they need a savior to save them from their sin. But this is the reality. God, we're the babes. The children of God, we're his babes. And he reveals, he, he thanks God that we have the ability by the power of the spirit to understand these things, to understand the message of the gospel, to understand our need for the gospel message, our need for repentance, but with understanding comes responsibility. See, we're held accountable to the things that we know and the things that we understand, which brings me to my second point. Understanding comes with expectation. Understanding comes with expectation. God expects us to do something with the understanding that we have. He reveals these things to us, recognize, yeah, we know we're sinners and we're in need of repentance, but that's the expectation, the repentance. I'll let you understand you're in need of a savior. You're in need to walk in a lifestyle of repentance, but I'm expecting you to do just that. If you look, flip over maybe a page or two, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explains to the disciples why he speaks in parables. And he says in verse 11, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It's been given to us to understand, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, forever has, to him more will be given and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. He's talking about the accountability that comes with understanding his word. The Lord will reveal things to us that need to change, but he expects us to change them. And he wants us to even ask, Lord, hey, I know there's things in my heart that need to change, but I don't even really know what they are. Some things I might know what they are, but I might not understand every little thing in my heart that needs to change. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is he saying? Hey, I know there's things in my heart that are wicked, that are deceitful, that are ugly, that are sinful, that I don't even understand. Like, search me and reveal these things to me. I want to understand. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't even, I can't even pinpoint what the, what the sins are. Yeah, I'm prideful sometimes, and I'm selfish sometimes, and I see that, but I know there's more than that in there. God, reveal, I want to understand what these things are so that you can cleanse me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
So often when I pray this prayer, sometimes I have to wait a little, like a couple weeks in between praying this prayer. The things that God reveals to me about myself, it is wicked, it is nasty, it is ugly. I'm like, oh my gosh, why did I pray that? But I... I, I want to understand. I want to know those things in my heart. But when we pray this prayer, if you pray it with sincere heart, believe me, God's going to be like, you and your wife, man, you're selfish. You're always thinking about yourself. Man, you come off prideful. And the Lord will begin to give you understanding of those sin struggles. But with that understanding, he has an expectation that you repent of it. Hey, we've addressed it. Look at it. This is who you really are. We can pretend like we're something that we're not, but God knows who we are better than we do. We can, we can convince ourselves that we're something that we're not. We can convince ourselves that we're better than we really are, that we're more spiritual than we really are. But God says, I'm praying to the Father. I'm thanking him that he's revealed your sinfulness to you, that you need a savior. You need repentance. Like I'm thanking God for that. Don't be ashamed of it. Recognize these things need to change. Pray that God reveals them to you. He gives you understanding of those things so that we can walk in the freedom that he desires for us. But this is the problem. Sometimes we can pray that prayer, ask God for understanding. God, show me that nasty stuff in my heart. He reveals them. The spirit convicts. And then we, eh, I don't like what I saw. I'm not going to address that one. I'm going to steer clear of that one. Yeah, these other ones, I, I, I want to change these things, but not this other thing. Like, yeah, the pride, the selfishness, but, but not the self-control. I love eating donuts at Jensen's for breakfast every morning. I love indulging in my flesh. And it could be anything. But what happens is as the Lord reveals and exposes and gives us understanding of those things, we have an opportunity <laughs> um, to walk in repentance. But if we don't, that's when it gets a little sketchy. Because what happens, the Bible talks about grieving the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. The Holy Spirit does a lot. That's one of his main goals. He's convicting us, the believer of sin that needs to change. But when we grieve the spirit, that means, eh, I don't want to hear that. We grieve the spirit to the point that we quench the spirit. We quench the spirit. It's like we become numb to the conviction that we don't see sin as sin anymore. Think about something in your life. Maybe it was a while ago and the Lord was like convicting you of that thing and you closed your ear towards it. You're like, I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to change that thing. Maybe it was a form of idolatry. Maybe it was something that you just can't get away from. He's saying, hey, you need to change that. You need to change that. You need to change that. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to change that one. I'm good with this one. I'm comfortable in this sin. We're grieving the spirit to the point that we quench the spirit so much so that we become numb to the conviction of the spirit that we don't even see it as sin anymore. Do you think God changed his mind? Do you think he's like, oh, no, don't worry about that. Anymore. Oh, you didn't want to, oh, sorry. Sorry, I told you to change that thing. Never mind, I pushed you too hard. No, it's like, dude, you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear what I have to say. You don't want to sense the conviction. So I'm just going to give you over to that thing and you're going to face the consequences of it. Just as he gave the people of Israel over to the king that they desired, the sin that they essentially 
desired. And that's a scary place to be, numbing the conviction in our lives. But then he says this, and I love this. A little heavy, but look what he says now. Verse 26, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the third and final point. Repentance is easier than it seems. Repentance is easier than it seems. Jesus isn't telling us to fly solo, to do this on our own. He says, no, come to me. Like, you can't do this on your own. You weren't meant to do this on your own. Just come to me. That's all you have to do. That's the first step. We're going this direction. We turn around and go his direction. Come to me. All you who labor, because so often we can try to work so hard to get rid of the sins in our life and we could put so much effort and energy and yes, there is a diligence and a perseverance, but that perseverance and diligence is directed towards coming to me, to, towards coming to Jesus. All you who labor and are heavy laden. This heavy laden, if you look with me to Isaiah 1 verse 4, what is he talking about? What would we be laboring over? What would we be heavy laden by? Look what it says here in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. We get laden, weighed down with iniquity, with sin. We attempt to carry the weight of our sins and we simply can't. We can't carry the weight of our sins. We weren't meant to. That's what Jesus did. Jesus carried the weight of our sins. He bore the burden of all the sins that have ever been committed, that are being committed right now, and that will be committed in the future on the cross. He bore the weight. That's why the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares you. You're trying to carry a weight that Jesus already carried. You're trying to carry a burden that he already died for. He carried that weight. Quit trying to pick it back up. Lay aside the sin. Repent of the sin and then we'll be able to run with endurance. Then he says this, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, I think I talked about this a little bit um, Wednesday night, a couple Wednesdays ago. I talked about this verse a little bit. But, but a yoke um, was a, a, a wooden contraption that basically uh, would, would put two oxen together, okay? So you had a stronger oxen and a weaker oxen. And they would be custom made to fit the oxen. So basically you'd have the strong oxen leading the weaker oxen. And this is what Jesus is saying. Dude, I'm the strong oxen. You're just a little baby calf. My babes in the faith. Get yoked up next to me. I'm not trying to, to ask you to do something that's impossible. I'm gonna do this thing with you. Just get yoked. All you have to do is put the yoke around your neck and come with me. 
I'm going to carry you. I'm going to carry the weight. I'm going to carry the burden. Don't try. You just have to, you just have to stay close to me. Don't worry about getting so weighed down with the weight of these things that you were never meant to carry. It says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus isn't trying to muscle the load either. He says, learn from me. Jesus is the way, right? He's gentle. He's humble. He's meek. What's meekness? It's strength under control. He's leaning on the strength of the Father. He's leaning on the strength of the Holy Spirit. In his humanity, he's leaning on God's strength, not his own. We need to learn to find our strength in God. He's the one that will give us the strength to walk in repentance, to experience this freedom. God is the rock of my strength, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And he says this. 29. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our rest. He's trying to give us rest. It's Hebrews chapter 4. context, this is speaking of the Sabbath, and we'll talk about this next weekend because Jesus is going to start speaking of the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. That's God's desire that we would find rest in him. When we're listening to the Lord, when we're listening to the conviction of the Spirit, we're allowing him to work in our heart and in our lives, we'll have rest. We'll experience peace. That's one of Jesus's goals for us in repentance, that we would find rest in him. Because what's the opposite of that? When we continue in sin, we become restless, right? Think about it. You ever had a time in your life where you're just like awake all night because you're thinking about a sin that you committed? Like, oh man, I need to really get this off my chest. I can't sleep. Sin causes sleeplessness. It really does. We feel that conviction. It's like something's not right. I need to get this thing off my chest. She's like, yeah, get the thing off your chest. I want you to experience rest. But this is the problem. And if Paul struggled with it, uh, we will too, but look what he says in Romans chapter seven. We're almost done. Romans chapter seven, he talks about this battle, this internal battle. And he says, in Romans chapter seven, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find that in... in I find then 
a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. What does he say? I'm doing the things I don't want to do and I'm not doing the things I know I'm supposed to do and I want to do. It's this battle against the flesh and the spirit, the sinful flesh. There's nothing good that dwells in it and it's leading me astray. It's leading me the opposite direction of God. I'm having this internal battle and Lord, I need your help. Who can help me? Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Jesus Christ will deliver me from this body of death. Jesus wants us to be free. He wants us to rest in him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, you can write this down. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You know we're free not to sin? We have the freedom to not commit sin. We don't have to sin. We don't have to. The spirit of God dwells in us, gives us the ability and the power to not sin. We don't have to sin. We have freedom, but we're only going to experience that freedom if we're resting in him, if we're coming to him. Jesus calls us to repent so that we can be freed from the bondage of sin. In John chapter eight, verse 32, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That's his goal for revealing truth to us. I reveal this to you because I want you to understand What's wrong with you? I want you to know the truth about me. I want you to know the truth about you. I'm perfect, you're not. Not me, Jesus. <laughs> but that's what he said. I want you to know the truth. Jesus wants us to know the truth about him. And we know the truth about him, that he is perfect, he is holy. He is the only way to heaven know the truth about us. We're not. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. Every single one of us has missed the mark, whether it's one time or a million times. It doesn't matter. We missed the mark. We fall short. Know the truth about him. Know the truth about you. And when we put those two truths together, the truth will make us free. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior, and he's the only one that can save me. I can have freedom there. I have to come to him, though. Can't try to do this and just like behavior modify and say, okay, I'm going to be a good person today. No one's good but God, okay? Let's remember that. We can't. We're not going to just be a good, I'm not going to wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be good today. It's like, no, I'm going to come to Jesus today because I'm not good and I need him. I need to find rest in him. I need his strength. I need to get yoked up next to him so that he can lead me in the way of righteousness, that he can show me, that he can teach me. He said, learn from me. He can teach me what it what it is to be good. And that's only him dwelling in me. Just as Paul said, there's nothing good that dwells in my flesh. The only goodness that we can ever partake in is when Christ comes inside and we make that commitment to live for him, to repent of our sins, to have that relationship with him. And in that moment, he seals us for the day of redemption. He gives us the strength and the power to walk 
and freedom to walk in sinlessness doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes, doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to fall short, but they should be less and less and less often as we continue to be transformed into the image of Christ. Don't attempt to carry a burden that he already did. Choosing a lifestyle of repentance is choosing a lifestyle of freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, God, and um, this call to repentance. Lord, at first, just looking at it, it seems so hard, so difficult, so impossible. But Jesus, you don't tell us to just do it on our own. You don't just set this standard for us to live and say, go for it. No, you say, get yoked up next to me. I'm gonna do this with you. We're never alone. We weren't meant to try to live up to your standard alone. It's only by the power of your spirit, only through relationship with you that we can live um, sinless lives, that we can live in freedom, God. We know that your grace is is always present with those that know you, that have relationship with you, Lord. But I, I pray we wouldn't um, just focus on the grace and expect the grace, Lord, but we would answer the call to, to change the things in our lives that need to change. And with that, we know it, it, you're not asking us to do that just because you're a mighty God and you're forcing us to do this thing. No, you want us to experience freedom. You want your kids to be free. Lord, so I pray that we would experience that freedom that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.